Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of the Operation Gladio podcast. As always, it is Hirsch, a.k.a. Stone Samurai, and I'm joined alongside my brother. Hello, Stu. How you doing? Hey, Hirsch. How's it going, man? Not too bad. Let's see if we can try to get the, the podcast to cooperate with us. Um, sorry it's been taking so long. Uh, we had a little bit of uh, technical issues yesterday. But I just want to say to everybody who's been listening so far, thank you guys so much for the continuous support. Um, a couple of the podcasts have reached up to about 30, 40 listens so far. And uh, Operation Gladio episode is, I believe, at 20, 20 listens now. So thank you guys for all the support, all the listens. Um, thank you to everybody who's giving feedback because of you guys. We have a couple new ideas now um, for some episodes that we're going to be doing in the future uh, once we wrap up Gladio. Um, with that all being said, I'm going to pass it along to my brother who's going to kind of give you guys a uh, rebreather, if you will, and catch you guys up on exactly all that we've talked about so far and moving on forward to the focus of today's episode, which is um, the role of Italy and everything that happened in that specific region um, in pertinence to Operation Gladio. Absolutely. I just wanted to say thanks again for having me, Hirsch. It's uh, been a lot of fun so far doing these episodes, and I'm glad people are enjoying it and coming up with suggestions for their own ideas, too. It's going to be really fun getting into that stuff, too. Yeah, especially the uh, the Chinese uh, history thing. That's actually going to be kind of fun if we end up doing that. Yeah, it's an area that I know a little bit from couple courses i took in in school but other than like uh dynasty warriors there's not a whole lot i know you know <laughs> yeah yeah well i know lu bu is a fucking badass and you don't want to yeah. mess with him so. yeah don't fuck with lu bu yeah lu bu ain't the one to fuck with. but yeah um figured last time we had touched on gladio as an overview kind of going into the history of it uh, it's it's history as a nato operation uh connected with all the NATO countries and some countries that weren't even in NATO. All these countries did have operating Gladio networks, but there have only been three countries that have done any kind of parliamentary investigations or any kind of real reckoning with what happened. And even in that case, Italy is the best case of where an investigation actually took place, a deep, thorough investigation, at least as thorough as it can be when it comes to this kind of thing. Where in Belgium, you kind of had more of a wishy-washy investigation. So... We at least are going to be covering, because I think part of why we wanted to come back to this is we both felt that Gladio was a little bit overwhelming. There was a lot of different ways to cover it, a lot of different avenues to check out. And that we, with our overview, with our discussion, we didn't really get into the specific terribleness and the specific horror um, that was actually involved with Operation Gladio. And what was fun, I think, fun is maybe a bad word, but what was interesting was we did have two different tracks that we were looking at Operation Gladio, where mine was more of the traditional geopolitical kind of happenings involving leftist parties, right neo-Nazi groups, and the NATO organizations, whether they were secret police or the CIA, that kind of thing. But you, Hirsch, had a, a really interesting track that you were looking into involving stuff like the Vatican, the mafia, and the CIA. And I, I, that's why I think it's interesting and why we wanted to come back to this is that we had so much more to go on and be kind of only able to touch a, a small portion of it. And especially interesting to me is, is hearing what you have to say today about, you know, the, the avenue that you were able to look into. Definitely. And I mean, likewise, it's, um, you know, going through and find, following the money and seeing 
um, a little bit of the underbelly of it all. Uh, it, it it definitely started making me think like, okay, well, you know, this is what's kind of going on in the underworld, and you can kind of see how um, influential and powerful money is. But you know, with with the research I did, I was able to see obviously some cases of how much that that power and that money manifested. But you know, now I'm going to be able to kind of connect the dots, and I'm kind of interested to see. Um, just how many times names that I found um, pop up through some of the stuff that you found, just because it is all very much interconnected. Um, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you have the the political structures that are kind of running parallel um, with the with the Vatican, with the church and as well as organized crime and in the underbelly of of the streets. Absolutely. It, it all ends up connecting and it, it all runs parallel, which I think is a, a phrase to keep in mind for a couple moments from now. But uh, I think part of what I had found interesting in the documentary that I've been watching that was a lot of uh, background material for what I've been looking into. And, and part of the reason I put off finishing up the documentary is I, I, I try not to, to get too much of a narrative from someone else or too much of an idea from someone else before I've had a chance to interact with ideas. And I'm, I think you're the same way where you want to have a chance to, to look at things on your own, get an idea going and, and check those things. Cause you know, you could be totally wrong and coming at it from a, from a completely bad perspective. And it's always good to have checks on that kind of thing. But I always hold off on, on taking in certain media just to make sure I have my own ideas before I can get bought into it. But, but part of what I liked about that documentary is, is he was able to talk. Uh, this was that Swedish filmmaker, or excuse me, filmmaker, there was a Swedish historian, it was a different guy, there was a uh, BBC documentarian who was able to actually get these guys on camera who had had history with this kind of stuff. And it was done in 1992, I believe. So it was only a couple of years after Gladio was kind of brought out into the open in 1990. But one of the videos I did find, and I sent along to you, was involving the writer that you, uh, you had found more information on. What was his name again? Um, Paul F. Williams was the, was the name of the author. Paul Williams, you know, we, we kept on joking, thinking it was John Williams, but that's the, the Star Wars composer. So I'm pretty sure that's why <laughs> yeah. we had that name. That's why the name kept popping in my head, because I've been watching so much fucking Star Wars lately and playing Battlefront 2, man, I'm telling you. Yeah, and, and Paul, John, you know, it's it's understandable. Yeah, they're both interchangeable. They're both typical, like, you know, Mr. Smith names. almost. You yeah, know. well, yeah, disciple names, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. But yeah, you uh, you were able to look a little bit more into into what he had done, and he has a book that connects the CIA, the Vatican, and the mob. And uh, I, I the inter- the interview that I looked at was pretty interesting because he he ties it also into to some modern day stuff with the formation of ISIS and us kind of fucking things up in the Middle East in, in the last you know thirty forty years, if not longer. Well, I mean, it's it's basically um, history repeating itself. I mean, I often I often think of true detective season three where they kind of have that moment they talk about time being this flat circle and that's basically kind of what history's shown us throughout and we see these instances of literally similar things just kind of happening in different parts of the world and you know gladio is one of those things where um as we had mentioned before in the first episode it was implemented as a state behind network to kind of fight against communism and the threat of it um just because that at one point during the war, the, the United States had realized that Russia's military strength had improved drastically and that they were a much more fierce force militarily and on an economic level 
than before. And it kind of just happened overnight because before World War II, without getting too far off the track, before World War II, Russia was kind of looked at as the laughing stock of the country when it came to military might and when it came to their economy, just because there had been so many rebellions and all of the uh, of the corruption. You know, you had the ruling of the Tsars and everything like that. And it was actually a, a, it was a war of theirs, I think, between them in Japan or maybe a series of battles that kind of put them on the map as far as a modern military force a little bit before World War II. I could yeah, be just it, it might be China, but it was either Japan or China that they had like a, a you know with their with their eastern lands they had like a conflict. Exactly, but um, the main point of me bringing all that up was just that it, it's now you know remove communism, which is still kind of a fear that's thrown around by a lot of the. Um, the older uh, generations that are still in our government, um, but replace communism now with um, Islam or, you know, Muslim, whatever. And it's, it's basically the same thing. You know, we have the United States that's trying to implement um, different groups um, just to kind of keep things uh, within control. Obviously you can't control things perfectly, but to cause enough destabilization, um, to where you can kind of implement people that you want to eventually get into power. And it's kind of like the similar thing. So like you had said, Steve, it was really interesting to see him bring up, um, here's one of the, here's the word again, um, the parallels between uh, what was going on with the communism, uh, the war on communism and the war on ISIS and the war on Islam. Oh, absolutely. And uh I, I, like you said, I just I thought that was great that he was able to tie that in because this guy, he was basically a former intelligence officer, admitted uh, neoconservative. And just a little bit of background, those were neocon was a term. We hear neoliberal a lot more nowadays, but neocon was a term that was especially used when I was first learning about politics and history in the early 2000s. Um, that was the George W. Bush administration that ended up invading Iraq and in in, in launching the war in Afghanistan based on these neoconservative ideas that basically stemmed out from old anti-communist ideas. So again, it, it's all connected. And so you have this guy who, who basically renounced those ideas, who I think you had mentioned he was, he was very religious too, as well. Yeah. Part of his, part of his upbringing and his childhood, he was very religious, you know, family went to church and, you know, he was devout. He, par he participated in uh, communion and, you know, the whole nine yards. Okay. Yeah, so and I it was, it's a total oh, turnip. Yeah, and and he mentions that he kind of has like a prologue um, in the book where he just kind of mentions the fact that you know he was a man of faith, and um, upon his discovery of Operation Gladio, it kind of rocked his um, his belief and kind of changed the way that he viewed uh, religion and the church itself. Oh, absolutely, and I, I can I can really. Um... I can understand that feeling of Gladio changing your worldview, because I think one of the things that happens is as, as we study this, and as you see the the patterns start to emerge, and, and you find, and you find out the ideas that are going on behind it, it, it's hard to look at other events and not either try to think of them in in the same perspective, or at least try to to take into account that it could be a possibility. One hundred percent. Yeah, and I, I think it's one of those things that's definitely changed how how I view at least the last 40 or 50 years of world events and, and ones that we continue to see today. Well, and, and the thing is too, you know, it, 
Gladio at one point was just a conspiracy, but it can't even be called that anymore because it's been proven fact, right? It's something mm-hmm. that's real. But the interesting thing is when you start looking into into Gladio, you start seeing a lot of these other buzzwords that you see within the conspiracy community. I mean, you have things like the Freemasons, <clears throat> excuse me, you had things like the Knights of Malta, which we had talked about before, which was basically um, this uh, religious sect of knighthood that dated all the way back to the Crusades and was basically, um, I don't know if it was like a sister group or some sort of relation to the Knights Templar. Um, yeah, it's not so like had- they were a similar organization. There was a lot of groups like that. There was Knights Hospitaller. Uh, there was the Knights Templar. There was a couple other organizations. The Knights of Malta were basically a later version of that uh, involved in, I believe, the island of Cyprus, which is, you know, in the middle of the Mediterranean. And so you had a, a Greek, Greek Orthodox influence and eventually a Muslim influence that were kind of fighting over control of that, especially with the Ottomans. And so it becomes this religious organization that I think also might have been um, the Catholic um, strength at that time is the Knights of Malta specifically. But they were, they were heavily involved in what you would kind of consider crusades, but it was uh, much later on than like the, the Middle Eastern crusades. 100%. Um, so before we get into all that, um, the, the thing that I just want to kind of remind everybody about uh, before, we, before we delve into it is, again, we see a lot of these buzzwords that are that are thrown within the conspiracy community, and the the other important thing um, about Gladio is you see a lot of a lot of names. If you ever you know paid attention in history class, or if you ever had to look up some sort of project when it comes to um, international affairs, whether it be you know. Uh, state attorneys or department of defense or anything like that and it's just again i i want everyone listening to understand that this is more or less um the information that my brother and i have gotten and kind of our perspective on it but we want you guys to also while you're listening to just kind of think of these concepts and you know use your own mind to kind of uh draw the lines yourself if you will um just because there are so many different twists and turns and as we go deeper into Gladio, you will see exactly why uh, Steve had kind of brought up a little bit earlier the importance of not digesting too much information from one specific source before making up your mind. So I just wanted to add that in real quick um, before we get into it. Yeah, and also, like like you said, we're going to be mentioning names like the Freemasons, or at least a Freemason-associated group coming up here, um, Knights of Malta, try not to to think you know we're going to be going too far out there with tinfoil hat kind of stuff like the stuff we're talking about mainly is stuff that's either been proven that's been out there on official sources or at least can be can be thought of as plausible based on what is out there um we're not gonna at the end tell you that you know the world is actually run by lizard people or or, you know that that there's water because it's we haven't found any proof of that yet yeah, and that's the tough thing about talking about stuff like this, especially in the age of like QAnon, right, is like uh, and deep state kind of stuff, is that there is a kernel of truth behind a lot of these conspiracy kind of things. And, and not in the way that, you know, the QAnon supporters and the, and, the, and the MAGA people want you to think, but 
that's why it's tough to talk about this because you don't want to feed into the Alex Joneses of the world. You don't want to feed into to the the far right conspiracies of like a new world order and like especially with the anti-Semitic undertones that that usually carries. You know, exactly. And and so you do want to you do want to though realize that like especially during the height of the Cold War and especially now after what they call the end of history era that we found ourselves in neoliberal ascension making good on all these things that they were building on for so long is that, you know, it's not just a a far right conspiracy to say that you have these groups who have been trying to make sure that their, their objectives and goals are met. You know, it's not, it's not too far out there. And so, yeah, did you want to start? We can just do a little bit of background on, on what we talked about with Gladio the last time. Yeah, we can go with that. Um, did you want to start it off or do you want me to kind of just give a quick brush over? Um, yeah, if you want to do a quick brush over and I'll kind of add if I if I think anything needs to be kind of. <laughs> All right. So um, basically just a quick little um, recap of Operation Gladio. Um, after World War II and, and parts of during World War II, um, I had mentioned earlier, the United States and Germany had realized that Russia was kind of a um, bigger problem than they had previously thought. Um, there were numerous instances throughout World War II where um, separate factions of the Third Reich would start to uh, reach out to United States and allied forces via messengers from the Vatican, um, which is funny enough. Um, and, and we can talk a little bit more about uh, the Vatican's role with uh, pre, pre, post, and during war, uh, World War II. Um, but at any rate, you have uh, these messages that start getting relayed back and forth, and you have um, high-ranking uh, Department of Defense officials and State Department and um, intelligence agencies uh that are that are starting to kind of float around this idea of like okay what if we do decide to make a a pact or a treaty with germany and then start fighting along the eastern front against russia and it became this uh this idea that at first was kind of easily rejected but then they started thinking about it and the idea of communism right so like at this point in time communism was um, a very growing political ideology there you know yet place like China Russia obviously who was starting to practice um, communism through Stalin and it was not only the fact that it was communism in a different um, political power structure that kind of intimidated and brought fear within um, German military ranks and United States military ranks. It was the fact that a lot of um, communism and uh, communist theory kind of revolves around atheism itself, right? The absence and removal of religion, just because a lot of times we are often shown the corruptions of religion. Um, So because of that, you had um, the Nazis who basically they weren't necessarily like Christian or Catholic, but they kind of had a similar belief style that there's a higher being um, that kind of controls destiny and kind of controls who's in power and, you know, dictates, well, you know, who's chosen and who's not. And they played into and, the traditional like family structures, the traditional like society structures. It was a very like conservative, like for a reason, you know, like it, that exactly just like ideas too, like a hierarchy 
uh, everyone has their place in society. That, that, that fits very well in with like Protestant and, and old school Catholic religion. Exactly. And so you, you had, you had the Germans on that side. And then of course you have um, the United States, which is, you know, cr- heavily uh, Christian, you know, Eastern religion. And the Vatican had realized that the growing strength of uh, the USSR was going to present a problem for them, not just uh, in in worries of an invasion, but financially, right? They're not going to be able to establish churches and create more revenue if, you know, more of these uh, countries over in Europe become, uh, start falling underneath uh, communist rule. So in the eyes of the Pope, it was best to kind of forgive what the Germans were doing for the sake of ensuring that there would not be a quote, godless society. Right. So you have people like um, Jesus Angleton who eventually became um, head, head director of what we know now as the CIA. Um, You have people like wild Bill Donovan who are involved in this. You have, um, uh, Michelle Sendona, who was a prominent banker. There's there's a lot of key names that are again that are that are part of this. And eventually down the road, you have um, former Hitler military members working alongside CIA operatives that start establishing connections and um, supply stashes for far right um, fascist leaning groups to ensure that in case Stalin does start invading Europe that there is a resistance that will be able to um, uh, disdain any sort of Soviet attack and at least buy enough time for allied troops to come in and reinforce. Yeah, um, those were the, uh, those were the stay behind networks that we had talked about the last time. And a little bit, you know, you talked about the Nazi connections to all this. If you want to ha- get a little bit more background, if you're interested more in the, especially in West Germany and the United States, and also a little bit in South America, if you want to see what happened with denazification and we're not just making this kind of stuff up. It's something called operation paperclip. It's a, it was a real program. It was something they did, especially with NASA and bringing ex Nazi scientists in for the rocket programs and that kind of thing. Like this is all verified history and definitely check it out. If you're interested at all in this kind of stuff that we've been talking about, because that's definitely connected. No. And, and and that's that's where we kind of see and that's one of the things just to quickly delve off for one second. I'm sorry for rambling, no, okay. it's just there's so much. Um that was one of the things in history that I always kind of wondered about is like, okay, why was it Argentina um when it came to this the displacement of um escaping Nazis, right? I was like, why is it Argentina and South America? Right. And then on top of that, I was just thinking to myself, who did it, right? Because even though there wasn't cell phones and, and um, you know, journalists on the on the level that we have today, um, it, it wouldn't have been so easy for the United States military to just escort a bunch of former SS officers um, to South America and just dump them off and wave goodbye, right? They couldn't just do that. Somebody would eventually find out. Um, but that's where you start seeing the introduction of the the Vatican and the Catholic churches um, during World War II and post-World War II, and you start seeing the power structure and how their involvement becomes so prominent when you when it's really just seems like it's a toss-away uh, item at first. Um, uh, but to get back on, but, but to get back on track, so you have 
Um, at one point, uh, when it started off, there was about 400 operatives. And again, most of them were former um, Hitler uh, high-ranking officers, people that would uh, obviously be in high command, people that Hitler had trusted. And then there was also a mixture of just your typical, like, um, neo-Nazi groups and right-wing fascist groups that, you know, and gangs throughout Europe. And there was even a few um, leftist groups that they had included as well. One of the names that I had seen constantly involved um, were referred to as the Red Brigade. Um, yeah, that's the one in, in Italy. Yeah. Um, and, and there were a few others. There was an entire um, naval sect of the, the Italian uh, Navy uh, that was used eventually for Gladio just because of the prominence of one of the captains. And it starts off as, like I said, this network, 400 people. And within two to three years, it bloomed to a membership in, in the uh, tens of thousands. And it became not just having, you know, uh, people on the streets and, and military muscle. It started um, working financial as well as political um, conspiracies and coups that started taking place. Um, yeah, and, I don't know. And, if you want to... No, absolutely. I was gonna gonna just add to that that the these weren't just one singular organization. They weren't just uh, one group that was operating. They were what we can call or what has been called parallel structures. They were different organizations with different goals that were either working in concert or either just on their own, and they would aim towards a commonality. Their their goals, their motives, their objectives would be different along the way, but they would all be um, connected by especially anti-communist goals. And so what they were tapping into was based on the old resistance networks that were actually fighting against the Nazi invasions in Europe, uh, inspired by, uh, the British were inspired by other groups that were able to at least use guerrilla tactics, explosives, small arms. And so they started training these gentlemen who could basically operate small cells. They would get into an area, train people, um, teach them how to do stuff on recruitment, that kind of thing, and you, you move on and you create networks that way. What these networks were set up for, like Hirsch had said, was as anti-communist networks. Operation Gladio starts off, also partially inspired by Operation Werewolf, that then <laughs> had to stay behind networks in their own country, where the idea is if there is a Soviet invasion, we can have these structures and these organizations in place beforehand as opposed to after the fact when it's almost too late. And what they can do is they can help fight behind enemy lines, essentially, if we ever have to reinvade or take um, the Soviets on uh, in a direct conflict. But as we all know, that never happened. There was never a direct conflict with the Soviets. There was proxy wars. There was a lot of proxy wars. Um, East Asia, um, Afghanistan, South America, Central America. Uh, those proxy wars did happen, but there was never a full-on invasion that Gladio was set up to prevent. And so what ends up happening is Gladio is turned inward. Uh, what do you do when you have these organizations built up, when you have tr people trained, when you have, when you have propped up uh, anti-communist propaganda and you have true believers who really want to get something done, that, that, that momentum has to go somewhere and it gets, it gets turned inward. And so I think what we wanted to talk about more was the, how Gladio gets used on its own population when Gladio gets turned inward. And the best example of this is, is Italy. Uh, you have what's called the years of lead. Part of what 
goes on in the years of lead is it's 1968 to roughly 1982. Those years are kind of disputed based on, on who you think is active and who you think is doing what. But that's kind of right smack in the middle of Gladio. Gladio starts, like Hirsch was saying, at the end of World War II. It's official at least from 1956 until 1990. Uh, 1956 because of stuff like the Warsaw Pact and everything else we talked about in that last episode. But you, So you have these stay-behind networks that eventually become something else. And the strategia della tensione is the strategy of tension. You have this idea that violent struggle is encouraged and uh, rather than suppressed. And so you have far left and far right groups along with the state basically at war with each other on the streets. But in a lot of cases, it's not really the far left. It's basically people blaming the far left or it's far left groups that have been infiltrated to the point where it's not really them in control anymore. And, so- and, and just to add to that, though, um, and, and the reason why we say that it was blamed on the far left, but it wasn't really obvious that it was a lot of these cases where these attacks happened, um, the explosives that they would find or the trace elements of the explosives that they would find, as well as ammunition and shell casings. Um, it wouldn't, it always led people to believe that it was a lot more sophisticated than a lot of these left wing, um, groups would have access to, right? Like I know, absolutely. um, one of the specific cases I know that they had blamed, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the specific name of it, but there was a, uh, bombing and they had tried blaming it on a leftist group. And they said that, you know, they had gotten training out of Lebanon and blah, 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 blah. But forensic analysts from across the world and a lot of, um, I forget the correct name for them, but a lot of watchers uh, for, for these kind of statistical numbers ended up stating that it was like, no, it's pretty much impossible for anybody who would be trained in that region to have access to that kind of high grade material explosive and those kind of uh, bullets and weaponry. Absolutely. Um, and I was going to talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that specifically. That's uh, one of the 1972 bombings. So we are definitely mm-hmm. going to get to that. And they, they are tied to Gladio caches. And we talked a little bit about this in the Brabant episode too, right? Where, <clears throat> excuse me, you're, you're finding uh, NATO arms caches um, either getting busted or just getting found sometimes directly. Like I think in Finland, we had mentioned they're still found to this day. Uh, or you have groups who are using weapons or using explosives, which are tied to these NATO caches that have been part of Operation Gladio. So either people with direct knowledge of these caches or the actual operatives themselves are connected to NATO. And that's a little bit about what we had spoken the last time, if you want to go back and check that out again. But so you have the far left, the far right, and the state all kind of at tension. And the goal is to get the people to turn to the state for more security. And you have guys like Angleton, who that plays right into it, right? That, that quote that we had mentioned before was... You know, deception is a state of mind in the mind of the state. And so this is exactly what they they are hoping for. Um, Not only can you suppress communism from without and from within, but you can also reach your economic and geopolitical goals um, in ways that you probably couldn't otherwise. And so some of the proof that people point to is that we had mentioned before was that U.S. Field Army Manual 30 to 31B where you know, they talk about using that strategy of tension, that there, this is supposedly a classified appendix of the U.S. Army Field Manual that talks about you know, using these, these groups and, and state-sponsored terrorism almost to, to get these goals achieved. 
The State Department, of course, denies that this stuff is, is true. It says that it's uh, Soviet propaganda that still makes appearances every now and then. But I think the more you look into it, especially any investigation that doesn't involve the U.S. State Department, kind of shows that that Gladio was usually involved in a lot of these things. And whether they were supplying the left or the right, at some point, it doesn't matter. It's the state doing it all. And it was all from one common goal. Absolutely. Yeah, and because because that's the important thing. Um, it's it's kind of the birth of what we kind of see now from uh, from a Vladimir Putin, right? Like diversion tactics, right? Not only do you fund the people that support you, you support the people, you fund the people that don't support you as well. Because at the end of it, anybody who starts delving into it and tries investigating it, they end up coming to so many intersections that they don't know what side's left and what side's right anymore. It all be kind of, it all kind of gets blended together. Absolutely. Cause you, you don't really care like who's doing it. You just want it to have an effect. It's a, uh, there was a quote that, that I saw that, you know, it was an everyday violence that would lead towards revolutionary fascism. That was, that was the goal for a lot of these people involved, whether it was state officials, whether it was people in the organizations or the, or the parallel structures that we end up mentioning later on here. Uh, politicians and leaders in some cases were aware, but in a lot of cases they weren't, or they weren't aware of the full <clears throat> consequences and ramifications of what was going on. Um, we can also say that this is a failure of media overall, too, because you would have these stories fed to the media that it was these leftist groups and they would just eat it up and take the state uh, wholeheartedly in any kind of statement they would make. We saw the same kind of thing with the neoconservative pushed to war with Dick Cheney and other sources in the New York Times, the Washington Post, where you basically have the media cheerleading uh, conflict and war and always taking the state side when it comes to these kind of things. And so, yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit specifically about the years of lead, that 68 to 82 period where you have kidnappings, arsons, and murders, uh, along with bombings performed, whether it was uh, leftist Marxist groups, far-right neo-fascists, and, uh, and state agencies, they either claimed responsibility or were blamed at one point or the other. This is a part of that strategy of tension where, you know, left, right terrorism doesn't matter. We also saw a similar thing in the Brabant episode where the bloody 80s in Belgium, where you had groups like the Westland New Point and, and other organizations run again by uh, Paul Latinus. He was mentioned a lot in that documentary I watched, Hirsch, which was, uh, I wish I had seen it before Brabant, but I'm, I know, I'm kind of glad I didn't watch everything at that time, because I probably wouldn't have gotten it all. But mm -hmm. he was basically planted into, into Westland. And he had been trained as basically a person who could set up these, or, these different cells. And he would get brought into an organization, teach them different things, and then move on, do his own thing. Because a lot of these organizations only lasted a couple of years, but they were, they were effective in the couple of years they were. And they tended to have the same repeating membership. Yeah, it was always so, cycles of like the same names that you would just see from, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. And the same thing happens in these groups in Italy. So you have these right-wing groups like the Ordine Nuevo, the New Order, and the Avantgarda Nacional, the National Vanguard. Um, there's multiple neo-fascist and neo-Nazi groups. There's the same thing with uh, different leftist groups. Hirsch had mentioned the Red Brigades. There's also similar groups in, in West Germany, East Germany, other parts of Europe that either form alliances or at least have, have similar goals for one reason or another. But to start getting into the actual years of lead and the, the terrible atrocities, because I think that, again, we wanted to highlight the actual, what actually happens when the state turns its violence on its own people 
I mean, I think we see a little bit of that with just the way the police treat, especially certain people in our population, black people, black men specifically. Like you see what happens when the state uses its violence specifically against its own people. And we see the militarization of police where the war is kind of brought home. I don't, you know, a lot of those videos over last summer, it was, uh, it was terrifying to see the, the lengths that people are willing, that the state is willing to go to, to, to suppress its own people. 100%. And I mean, we even saw it um, even before last summer, you know, with Standing Rock, where it was literally people uh-huh. that were just kind of like standing there and they were getting um, shot and tear gassed and, and beaten for, for for just for just assembling to protest to try to protect their uh, ancestors burial grounds, you know, like who anybody listening to this, right? Like, how would you feel if you had a cemetery full of family and friends? And the government said, you know what, we're going to fucking dig all of them up and dump them. Just dump them, not even like rebury them, pay for it, nothing. We're just going to scrap them up, dump them, and then we're going to put some oil there. And oh, yeah, by the way, water. Yeah, I was going to say, by the way, the pipe goes right underneath your fucking lake reservoir. So, like, if it bursts or busts, which (laughs) most of them they always do, then you guys are not going to be able to have any drinking water. And anybody. yeah, and then it did break. Um, it, but anybody who uh, has a friend who uh, is from the Native community, um, they they can gladly tell you what life on the reservation is like. I myself have made a few friends who've had to live the reservation life, and they have told me um, exactly how bad it is. Um, so, again, I think it, it's like Steve said, there's the, the lengths that the state is willing to go um, to get its goal. Um, does not fall short of terrorizing, harassing, and victimizing its own people. Absolutely. And so what happens is Gladio gets turned inward. The the threat becomes, as opposed to just a straight-up Soviet invasion, what happens if communists or leftists are able to take over politically? That will just end up feeding into a possible alliance with the Soviets and or an invasion. So we need to stop that from ever happening. And so... I think we're specific. Should we do a quick rundown on some of the, the events that happened with the years of lead and then get into more specifics about people and that kind of thing? Yeah, I was going to say just quickly before we get to specifics, I, the, the one thing I wanted to give for sure, just to give people an idea and why they call it the years of lead. Um, as Steve had said, it was the years uh, 1969 through 87, right? Um, yeah, th- those years are disputed too because I see 68 through 82 because some people say that it ends with this event involving uh, James Dozier, who was a U.S. officer that was kidnapped by the Red Brigades in 81. Some people say that it ends around then because that's the last like real action that involves like the the left. But that's I think you know it's debatable. Debatable, but um, from from the figures that I have between January 1st of 1969 all the way up until December 31st of 1987. There was over 14,591 acts of political violence that were recorded. Um, By the end of it, 491 were dead and thousands were injured seriously. Um, And again, we had kind of talked about it before with the uh, with the Brabant uh, killings. Um, And at this point in time in in our nation's history, we hear um, numbers like 491 dead and um, thousands injured when we kind of had uh, like we had the month that we did last month with COVID or the amount of people that are dying per day. Um, it, it's kind of easy to just throw off, but uh, this was taking yeah, we place. Num- in, numbers. Yeah. Um, but this is at a time when, you know, there wasn't a uh, school shooting every week. There wasn't um, 
much chaos, but this was purely entirely chaos for them. Again, 491 dead and thousands injured uh, through the, quote, years of blood. Well, and it was about the, the day-to-day terror, right? It was about making it, because these were all attacks in public spaces. It wasn't like it was assassinations in somebody's home or it was, you know, these state officials who were getting targeted for the most part. It was everyday people and everyday situation. And it was not knowing, like in Belgium, if it was okay to go to the grocery store. We can kind of relate to that right now, you know, with COVID. Like, is it okay to even go outside? Am I going to put somebody at risk in my family if I happen to go to the wrong place at the wrong time? And so I think that's something that, like, it's very easy to, to relate to right now. It's a slightly different thing, obviously, with a different form of terror. But we kind of get a similar feeling, I think, nowadays. But uh, so I think one of the one of the things that connects all these different events is that no one ever really gets convicted. There's very rarely even suspects that are named besides leftist groups or anybody who actually gets uh, put in jail, yet alone has a conviction stick. There's some late indictments, but there, there's really no resolution. It's a lot like Brabant, where you have theories, you have ideas, you have people who are named, people are connected, but there's no real official answer. And so a lot of this is going to be speculation. So take that with a grain of salt. But this is the best that we, based on what we found, this is the best that we feel about confidently saying how things might have happened. And so, yeah, you have... Yeah, 1969, like Hearst was saying, you have the, the first attack within the Piazza Fontana in Milan, where so begins the, the strategy of tension, where you have 17 killed, 88 injured. Uh, I did see maybe one or two different numbers slightly, but that's a couple of different places I saw that number. Yeah, uh, I have the same numbers right here. Yeah, and so that was one that was initially blamed on anarchists. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it was a series of well-coordinated attacks, but it was actually perpetrated by the Ordo Nuevo and other uh, like not quite known different organizations, whether it was secret police, whether it was uh, other far-right groups. Then you have July of 1970 in Rome, the Messina train bombing, where six are killed, 100 are wounded. You also have in 1974, both the Piazza della Lazio and Brescia. I'd, I'm sorry about the bad pronunciations, guys, where eight activists are killed by a bomb. And finally, in 2005, there was an indictment for that case. That's a, it's quite a bit. And then also in 1974, you, uh, in August of that year, you have the Italicus Express bombing, where there was a bombing on a train, killing 12 and wounding 48. Uh, Ordine Nuovo claimed responsibility, saying it was for revenge to show they uh, could place a bomb wherever they pleased. And there was also eventual acquittal of suspects on this part, too. And I was going to say for the suspects... Um... Augusto Kelchi was somebody that authorities were looking at for being responsible after certain groups had started coming out and claiming responsibility. And funny enough, guess where Augusto Kelchi fled to? Guess what country it was? What was that? Argentina. Argentina. Cool. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that fucking figures. Yeah, I just I just wanted to add that in because I, I had that in my notes. I wasn't sure if that's something that you had found. No, I, I didn't have that specific detail. I'm glad you added it. Yep. Yeah, but um, in between those bombings uh, in 1972, you, uh, oh, excuse me, in 1969, that bombing was meant to declare a state of emergency. That didn't quite happen, so they ended up kind of having to push things further and further. 
a lot of the sourcing in the documentary comes from this gentleman, Vincenzo Vincicodera. He was an Italian neo-fascist, former member of both the National Vanguard and the Order Nuovo. He seems to have been either really heavily involved in stuff or he knew a lot of people in it. And so he has a lot of information. He's a big part of that documentary. But he was involved in the 1972 bombing where he's now currently serving. He was currently serving a life sentence. I can't remember for sure. I should have checked to double or I should have triple checked to make sure if he was still alive or not. But he was involved in the 1972 bombing of, I believe, three police officers. And it was basically the far right was kind of getting upset with the state of using it against the left. And it was saying, you know, we can hurt the state too. It doesn't have to just be us hurting the people. We can go after you as well. And that was that, that bombing where the C4 explosive was tied to uh, the Gladio arms cache used by NATO. And then yes. uh, to kind of tie it in further, uh, that was the Petriano bomb, the Petriano bombing, excuse me. But the police expert, who, who worked on this case, had been a member of the Ordi Nuovo, and he blamed the Red Brigades. And so it basically... So you mean to tell me that the guy that, like, was known to be in a, like, right-wing fascist group blamed a leftist group for an attack? Yeah, yeah. Can you believe that Nazis are cops? Dude, no fucking way, man. That Dude, so Rage Against the Machine was actually onto something? It's not just a catchy song? Dude, I, Zach De La Rocha apparently was right. Man, that's fucking crazy. He's he's yeah. like the next Miss Cleo. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, Vince Aguero talks about, you know, they worked with Italian intelligence to basically carry out this attack and then blame the left. He had been covered for by an entire network of right-wing sympathizers in Italy and abroad. Protection stopped when he talked. He, quote, a whole mechanism came into action. A cover story was quickly accepted and disseminated. So that's, again, where the, the media was heavily involved. And you actually have a guy I'm going to talk about a little bit later who was actually a operative and all this kind of stuff, but he was officially a journalist. But uh, then you also have in 1980, one of the biggest uh, parts of all this, besides like the Moro kidnapping and a couple other things we'll get into specifically is the, the Bologna massacre that we had mentioned in the last episode where 85 were killed, over 200 were wounded. And it was most likely a fascist group with possible involvement by the secret services as well. And so everything that you have with Bologna shows that the structure was within the state itself. There was a secret anti-Soviet organization willing to act to prevent a slip to the left by really any means necessary. And so everything following 1969 and with the groups were being mobilized, not by deviations uh, from the norm or deviations from each other, but by the Atlantic Alliance NATO under Operation Gladio. And so that kind of sets the table for what we're going to talk about today with uh, the different sources that we had looked into and the kind of different perspectives. And uh, Hirsch, I know you had mentioned that uh, one of the early on things that you had found was the connection with the money line to the Vatican. Like, uh, who starts off that connection? So basically, the the connection is started off. Um, it, it's kind of like a, a muddied water situation. So you have to go back quite a bit. Um, and one of the names that keeps popping up the most is Wild Bill Donovan, right? He's the... Uh, United States military officer, part of the OSS at the time, which eventually, um, after changing names um, a multitude of times and a joining of two separate organizations that later became um, the acronyms of the CIA, um, he was somebody that was operating over in China. He was uh, chief um, intel analyst over in China for the OSS. And while he was over there, 
he had witnessed a lot of these uh, these Chinese Nationalist Party armies that would basically use opium runs and drug money to fund their army. And it kind of baffled him that they were able to get away with it, but then he saw how they were able to do it. And obviously underneath, you know, a communist rule, things are a little bit different. Um, but he had taken basically all he had learned over in China and he had brought it back to the United States intelligence offices. And um, that's where you had people like Jesus Angleton and a few of the other people that we'll get into with names. Um, they basically are starting up um, talks with the uh, some of the Hitler officers, uh, SS officers that are specifically tied in with the Eastern Front, right? Because that's the kind of highlighted area. So you have um, one specific uh, general that was in charge of Italian operations, which I'll have to go through my notes and look back later. But uh, Angleton then introduces um, Wild Bill to these SS operatives that have ties in with the Vatican, right? Because I had mentioned before, the Vatican was basically sending messengers back and forth um, from Nazi forces, kind of ensuring um, if if Nazi forces become triumphant, <clears throat> that they had established a, a relationship. And also if they end up losing, that they still have um, allies on the war against communism and the war against a godless state. So... You, you have Wild Bill, who's introduced to people like um, Guillen, and um, there, I believe his name was Carl Wolf, and some of these other high prominent figures, as well as um, introduced to a few high top um, prominent Italian bankers. One of the important names when it comes to Italian bankers that was kind of influential into getting the Vatican and the mafia involved was Michelle Sendona. All right. And this was uh, a very famous Italian banker. He was known as the shark and it was kind of, he had a very, he had a lot of obvious connections with the Sicilian mafia. He also had a lot of connections with um, a few archbishops that were over there, um, including one of which the name is escaping me right now. And I have to find that in the notes later, which you'll remind me um, who was basically in charge of overseeing the operations of the Vatican bank and the Holy See operations entirely. So, Basically, you have um, Jesus Angleton tells uh, Wild Bill that he will need him to step down from his role in the military. And when he does that, um, he will start up a financial group, which will basically be the, the CIA shell front for um, funneling the money once they start making these connections with um, Italian and um, uh, German banks. Okay, so mm -hmm. they they start up what's known as the World Commerce Corporation or WCC, and through World Commerce Corporation you have um, the Banco de uh, Ambrosiano, which is something that eventually um, is very pivotal and very important to the unearthing of the group that we had mentioned earlier, P two, um, as well as many other banks that are owned and and operated through shareholdings by the Vatican Bank. And so basically, like I had mentioned, Wild Bill was this guy who was the connection between um, U.S. intelligence offices, um, German intelligence, as well as Italian and Vatican banking, 
like that was the guy that was the connection between that um okay. and the connection that's brought between the mafia and the vatican um is a multitude of people um one of which is archbishop paul Mar- uh, paul marcinkus and um the other name i had mentioned earlier which i'm drawing a blank on just because there's so much information bouncing through my head um so that's basically um the beginning foundations of how the vatican is uh is incorporated into all of this in a nutshell okay no uh, i'm Sorry glad you that was like a super long tangent my bad no no that, I'm, that's why i wanted a little bit of background on it um like i said i'm excited to get into this stuff but uh i'm glad you brought up p2 um because that's kind of what i was going to get into really quickly is just a little bit of the background of what i was able to find as far as like some of the the players and starting out gladio in italy and kind of turning it towards the role that it has now or not now, excuse me, but later on in what we're going to be talking about here. So you have basically what's an invisible government in Italy run by the state secret services and groups of political terrorists. You have secret civilian and military organizations under which neo-fascist groups were allowed to encourage to operate with bombings and terrorist attacks. Like we had mentioned with the uh, similar to the Brabant attacks, it was basically to force the public to turn to the state for protection and security. They saw this as the role of the right to create that uh, fascist revolution. Uh, the targets before had always been the left, not the state, but as we saw with Vince Aguera, that eventually changed. But Vince Aguera talks about part of the reason was that what was shown with the strategy attention is that they end up remaining unpunished because the state can't condemn itself. And I, I appreciated that idea, even though this guy's a fucking Nazi piece of shit, that... <clears throat> You could kind of, he was one of the few people in the documentary I actually had a little bit of respect for, funnily enough, because the rest of the time, all these guys kind of felt like they were, they were bragging and that, you know, cause this is all right after the cold war ended, you know, this is after the fall of the Berlin wall. I know this is basically, this documentary comes out, you know, when you're a couple of years old or so, you know, you, you and a lot of people might not have the context for, for what was happening. The, the West had basically won the cold war. Uh, communism had been defeated. You know, that was the, the big talking point. And so you have these guys who on camera, you, you can know that basically they're, they're, they have the shit-eating grins, you know. They're basically bragging on camera about all the shit they got away with, but it was all done to protect capitalism, protect democracy, you know, et cetera. And at least with, with Vince Guerrero, he's not repentant. He's not sad that he did any of this stuff, but he knows what the fuck it was. You know, yeah. he knows that it, it wasn't noble. It wasn't, like, he may think that the, the objectives were good and he would do it again, like, you know, to... to he has these right-wing ideals, but like he's not cloaking it, you know. Like, oh, the communists were were actually doing all this stuff, and we never did anything bad. He knows that's what had to be done, and and kind of just owns it. And I don't know, like like I said, I, I don't I, respect's a bad word, but I kind of compared to a lot of people in the documentary. Well, you at least appreciate that he's not trying to hide behind it and trying to turn it into like a victimization. Yeah, yeah, he's not like pissed off at the world like he's pissed off at the state because he thinks that they turned their he thinks that the state turned its back on the right wing once they got what they needed which i can kind of understand what he means by that but also the right wing ended up getting everything it fucking wants what more do you want yeah yeah exactly but yeah this the state military and police uh protected the right during all this kind of stuff whether it was investigations or court proceedings they were you know told it was the far left or it was non-political organizations as opposed to opposed to the actual people who were, who were involved in this kind of stuff, including NATO and the CIA. There was training in secret locations, uh, blacked out planes, a stay behind base in Sardinia, 
uh, there was training and minimal info was given. You would know a cash location. You might know some of the structure, you know, like one person you would answer to, but you never really knew who was higher up. That's why this Vincent Guerrero guy is so interesting because he seems to know a lot more than just a normal guy would know. Yeah. They were, Which uh, makes me think that he was either one of the main orchestrators or he was like right there near it. Yeah, he at, he at least either knew somebody or knew a couple people who were involved in a lot of like the higher end stuff or he was one of the higher end people and he is only admitting to so much. Exactly. And yeah, they were called gladiators, of course. Gladiators. Gladiators. Uh, but yeah, the, these parallel structures, whether it was the Ordine Nuovo, uh, P2, uh, the fucking Vatican, uh, different, uh, different mafia organizations, mob organizations in Italy and Sicily. Um, neo-Nazi far-left groups, the, these parallel structures were all working towards a common end, which was that, you know, that strategy of tension that basically just creating as much chaos as you could and trying to take advantage of it. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, just for example, you know, in Italy, right, during um, World War II operations, you literally had Don Carlo, who was like, you know, the boss of all bosses, quote, um, over in Sicily, and because of the relations between people like Alan Dallas and Wild Bill and the introduction between them and people like Gillen Wolf, um, they had eventually like it was basically Don Carlo. Once you, once Allied forces landed over in Italy, like they basically had a bunch of like Italian mafia dudes waiting for them and just escorting them through the countryside. Kind of like that scene in Godfather, you know, when uh, Michael's getting escorted by the bodyguards and you see the 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 army people driving by and the and the mafiosos are like, hey, Americano, you know, and like cheering yeah. them on and stuff like that. And they have that nice relationship. It's it's kind of a hint at the fact that during World War II, um, this establishment between United States intelligence offices and the military and the Sicilian mafia were, were established and connected. And it was a relationship that kind of both parties used to benefit their ultimate goal. Well, and it's the same kind of stuff you see later on in, in places like Afghanistan, you know, where you make you make good with the tribal warlords that aren't the Taliban. Yeah. Or even more specifically for Gladio, stuff, stuff like with the Contra stuff and um, a lot of the Central America and South America operations. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm looking forward to us getting into that part of it, too. Yes, I can't wait. <laughs> um, but yeah. So you had these parallel structures, you know, uh, gladio weapon caches, explosive caches end up getting tied to these terrorist attacks, like we mentioned a couple of times. The CIA was uh, concerned with internal control and uprising because they realized that they could only control things politically and electorally in so many ways. You needed other ways of doing it. And so you have national security always getting cited. Cover-ups are ensuing. You can kind of imagine, I don't know, after 9-11 is similar you know, what we were able to, to pass as far as the Patriot Act, all that kind of stuff. Like we always go overboard with these national security. Either the blame was always shifted to either non-political actors, uh, even when the state was uh, the target, or it was always blamed on far left groups like we mentioned before too. There was commanders who knew of Gladio, uh, key people who gave orders. So it wasn't like it was just the CIA acting within these countries. Like you had officials in each of these countries who were, who were heavily involved in these cover-ups. There was a guy... Uh, Mingarelli, he was eventually convicted for crimes related to the cover-up. He had 10 and a half year sentence that was also reduced to two and a half years. So yeah, he really fucking paid for it. Oh, what, what do you mean, dude? Like, come on. Yeah, it was probably uh, somebody, time served. Yeah, like somebody, you mean to tell me people that are like really rich and powerful don't have to like uphold to the justice system? What? 
Yeah, yeah, of course not. We've never heard anything like that. Dude, I tell you what, this podcast is so information. I'm learning so much. <laughs> no, absolutely. But uh, hey, speaking of something that happened recently, uh, one of the things that does happen on December 8, 1970, there was an eventual attempted overthrow. It was called the Borghese coup. And uh, mm-hmm. it was canceled at the last minute. But it was basically involving these far-right neo-Nazi groups who were organized by a prince to attack the interior ministry. And this guy, Lieutenant Colonel Amos Spiazzi, talks about was an exercise in the maintenance of the public order using reliable men. They didn't want like extreme left or rightist at first involved because they didn't want it getting tied to anything political other than what they wanted. But of course, there was far-right Nazi infiltration because they didn't see that as political. That's just how you should think. And so... You have what's called Plan Triangle, which was to guard valuable locations during uprising. That's mainly where they wanted the non-left or right extremists involved, was to, told to keep quiet for state and national security. But it was, a, it was a way to kind of use these groups as, you know, if in case anything happens, if there's any subterfuge, we can keep an eye on it. So you have the Ordi Nuovo, far-right groups. Uh, Spiazzi, he had participated as a high-ranking artillery officer in the Ordi Nuovo. Uh, others eventually left the country when they were named as connected to it. So there are some people who, who I guess, did face some consequences, but they just went to, like, Argentina or the fuck ever. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a majority of them did go to Argentina. And, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the records um, involving a lot of these people, especially, well, more so on the western side. I'm not sure about the eastern side, but a lot of the records were burned or taken away. And a lot of the records over in um, over in Italy specifically, uh, with, with, in pertinence to the Vatican, like good luck getting that because they're a sovereign nation. So you know what I mean. They don't have to adhere to any sort of like international law. Dude, Vatican secrets would be so fucking awesome. Yeah, seriously. Secret. Like. No, it's it's actually funny. You know what's you know what's funny is just um a couple days ago the uh, the guy who took over uh, as treasurer for the Vatican Bank um after the the Banco Ambrosiano scandal, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, the guy who took over he just got arrested like literally a week or two ago for embezzlement and um for fraud. Oh wow, that's fucking yep. nuts. Yeah, because he took over. I think it was um, eighty eight or eighty nine, and then he was he was in charge from eighty nine all the way up until like the early two thousands, late two thousands. Oh, so he'd <laughs> been in power for a while. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was the guy that took over the basically like the the Gladio stuff, or while it was still in the ending chapters, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah, and just to just to reset really quick, the the Vince Guerra has this nineteen eighty four trial where you know he's on, he's put on trial for that car bombing of the three Cabarini uh, police officers. He basically at that point is pissed. He feels the right has been used. He's not really uh, protected anymore because he decided to speak up. He disclosed Gladio, the links to the West and the CIA, and you also have him talking about different groups that eventually will include connections to the Freemasons. Uh, Freemasons have always been anti-communist with high-ranking ties, army officials, judges, high-ranking police officials, carbonary officers, uh, ministers of government, whatever you can think of. Like our country, Freemasons are highly connected. It's not because the Freemasons are some conspiracy-driven Dan Brown kind of thing, but because they people the Freemasons want high 
ranking people to join them because it makes them look powerful, if that makes any sense. But Vince Guerrero talks about how neo-fascism couldn't stay outside of this phenomenon. They had to, they were, it was bound and determined to get involved one way or the other. And so you have this gentleman, uh, Licio Jelly. He was part of the SIM, which was the military special services during World War II. He went to Yugoslavia with this gentleman named Piero Perini. He was an outright fascist who, an anti-communist. He was part of what they called the double game in the Balkans, where they fought Tito, uh, who was a communist dictator, with the Germans, but they also fought the Croatians with the English. So they were playing both sides of this different conflict in the Balkans. And he was able to gain info uh, that meant he couldn't be marginalized. He apparently was able to get info on somebody high-ranking enough that he always had dirt on the right people. He was a very well-connected guy. But he was very active in Italian espionage and in the P2, Masonic Lodge. P2 uh, stands for Propaganda 2. Jelly was the venerable master. He was uh, head of this organization that was highly connected and elite. It eventually included members like Silvio Berlusconi, who was the former uh, prime minister and I believe president of Italy, who, was in, who also owns like a lot of different media there. Um, so again, it's not just, you know, guy, it's not just water buffalo guys like, and, you know, getting together and, and shooting the shit. Like these are highly connected people who are, are part of these organizations for a different reason than just, you know, a social reason. But it was a, a center of real power hidden from the public. But it wasn't the state. Again, these are parallel structures, part of Gladio. You know, they, they didn't have a military role, but they had a role in the internal subversion and propaganda efforts. And, and their anti-communist views tied into Gladio perfectly. And uh, they were connected to the CIA, of course. You have this gentleman, uh, Oswald LeWinter, who was part of the CIA and IFAC. We had mentioned those different organizations in our intro to Gladio here. But he talked about it was a wholly owned subsidiary of the company, the CIA. He had, was recruited. Uh, people were recruited by Jelly for their unswerving loyalty and anti-communism. American goals and aims for Western Europe. It was all one and the same. It wasn't that these people were getting used by the CIA. They had, they had similar motives. They had similar things they wanted to get done. And so we talked about 1969. The terrorism escalates dramatically. Starts with attacks in the spring. Includes various courtrooms and train attacks in August. The Milan Massacre, the, the Piazza Fontana. Uh, there was this group called the Padua Group, who was eventually involved with it. Uh, they apparently took orders. They weren't really the organizers, but they were blamed and held responsible. Uh, they definitely were involved, but they were never identified. There was five bombs, uh, 18 dead, 80 wounded. The attack on the bank. The police always blamed and investigated anarchist groups. Uh, again, it's the same old thing today. But that was the one that was meant to lead to the state of emergency. The military, the Ministry of the Interior, the Office for Secret Affairs were involved. And this, that's where the gentleman that I had mentioned, this journalist, uh, Guido Gianetti, Gianettini, excuse me. He had been in, in Padua. He was uh, in this gentleman, Giovanni Ventura's diary. I'll mention a little bit more about Ventura as we're going along. But he was an outside collaborator with the SID, with the Secret Services. And Ventura had been in contact with extra paramilitary left in Venice. And so you have these right-wing guys who are also in contact with different left-wing groups. Whether they've been infiltrated or not, they're sometimes working together. It was part of an overall strategy. And so I, I, I was going to ask if, if any of those names sounded familiar to you, including the, the gentleman um, running PT. 
Yeah, um, Jelly is somebody um, with P2. He has um, he he has a lot of the connections, not only between uh, the Vatican as well, but a lot of organized crime in the area. Um, he was, Jelly was basically the guy that um, refurbished, I wouldn't say refurbished, but reinforced uh, the relationships between people like um, Alan Dellis and uh, Jesus Angleton and uh, a couple of the other key players from uh, United States operations side of it. Okay, cool. I'm glad I'm not just, you know, pulling names out that weren't that important then no they they completely were and and i i'm glad that you brought up the fact that um the the former well former to us but future prime minister of um italy was one of these guys that was kind of implicated and involved in this um because that's that's kind of the key thing here um as steve had said there was not just the focus of having um uh the water buffalo guys come in hang out you know and throw some beers around and you know fuck some people up every once in a while it was um, beautifully orchestrated and structured to have people that were involved in the economic standpoint of society um, media lawyers um, prominent politicians entrepreneurs um, and and that's how a lot of these guys were able to uh, to establish their, their friendships now you had mentioned before um, how it was interesting how a lot of these people were able to have dirt and kind of outmaneuver. And that was kind of thanks to the efforts of people like Angleton, who kind of um, kind of showed jelly in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people over um, that were part of the Gladio network in Italy, um, how to use blackmail the correct way and how to make sure and ensure that you have information on just about everyone you can. So one of the, one of the ways that they would do their recruitment, which um, I, f- I found really like disgusting, but it seems like they it's something that's still done to this day, is the person that they would think would be beneficial to their group, they would start surveilling them, right? They would tap their phones, they would start, you know, taking pictures, following them everywhere, and they would get pictures of them, their family, friends, and just try to get as much incriminating evidence on them and the people in their life. So then that way, when they recruit this person, they say, hey, we have all this information on you, so you better go get your friend that we want and get him in here and let him know that we have some shit on him too. So like it was this vast network that was implemented thanks to people like you had mentioned um, that were part of these societies that were able to get up all these third on all these prominent people and able to kind of force the intersectionality to happen. Absolutely. And and one of the things that they eventually did, not only having the blackmail involved in getting different neo-Nazi groups involved, but they also started targeting leftist groups and creating leftist groups to kind of work for their means too. And so you have the Ordi Nuovo, the Avanguardia, the Padua group, this and other groups known and unknown involved in infiltrating the left. The attacks would be attributed and blamed on the left. Then they would infiltrate and have groups carry out attacks. So it was this, this self-creating kind of cycle that's one thing leftists always have to keep an eye on right is infiltration whether it's by the state or by by rightist agitators is that usually if you have somebody who's like the most bloodthirsty member of your group it's probably somebody who's there for the wrong reasons whether they're an infiltrator or not and so what you have are these extra paramilitary groups that are created or they're infiltrated they are instrumental in increasing the social and political tension in the country you know the strategy of tension that we've mentioned a couple times already you have what's called Section D, 
um, as part of these intelligent, I think that's the D and SID. I can't remember for sure. There's a lot of different acronyms. <laughs> but you had this guy uh, who's the head of Section D General Maletti. And in some of his reports, this guy Freda is known as Agent T. Uh, he denies any political involvement, but this is all pretty much confirmed by Vince Aguera and his kind of stuff. And eventually the, organi- uh, the investigation by this Judge Gerardo D'Ambrosio, he was an investigating magistrate. But uh, the Padua group was Freda, who was a National Socialist. He was basically a Nazi, but it was also the Italian Secret Services. Uh, Massa Milano, uh, Ficini, also Secret Services, General Maletti, G- uh, Gianni Casaline was an informer. Captain LaBruna helped Gianetti out of the country. Vince Guerrero mentions that in 73, he was asked to help Freda escape. Uh, security forces in the Ministry of Interior also aided Padua and the group. And uh, Maletti and LaBruna were convicted for aiding the Padua group eventually, but they were able to get them out for the most part. Uh, Freda and Ventura left with help from friends, quote unquote. Gianetti believed in uh, he was that Gianettini was that journalist who also was involved in all these groups. He, he believed himself in the Revolutionary War. He gave a speech in front of the chief of staff of defense in support of it, of Gladio and the anti-communist work that they were doing. It was the strategy of counter-revolutionary war. It was to provoke social tension and demonstrate the danger of the left with attacks. And so measures, any measures to be taken to prevent the takeover of power by the communists. They ascribe attacks to the left and infiltrated the left to carry out more attacks. So like I said, it was this self-perpetuating cycle, always making sure that the left would catch the blame and that they would, uh, they would, you know, the left would always be seen as the enemy that the state needed to have security against. But Freda has a quote here where he, he says, uh, I accept I have been a puppet in the hands of ideas. Uh, this Freda dude was interesting. He kind of had like this really like aloof, like, yeah, I did some stuff, but it wasn't really involved in anything. I just kind of acted on my own. And yeah, I knew all these people, but they never really told me to do anything. I would just do stuff. And that was kind of how Gladio would run. You, it was always plausible and deniability. But uh, he talks about, you know, we're all controlled by more powerful people. And that they always, you know, they're his ideas. Um, they just happen to be the state's ideas, too. But uh, you had the Bologna Massacre, like we had mentioned, that was probably one of the more more terrifying experiences for a lot of people. Um, important time for Italian American allied secret services, the electoral success of the Italian communist party um, recently basically put them on edge to where they needed something major to happen. Vince Aguero talks about they could, uh, the attacks were a response to the state based on a logic where it can no longer know how to confront a political enemy. So it resorted to violence. He talks about the state couldn't, deal with stuff politically it didn't have any political answers it had nothing material to offer to people so what they did was they offered violence and that you can blame the left and the right to justify it but any way you cut it it's state violence on its own people and so you have jelly in this interview uh he they actually got him to sit on camera i was very surprised in this documentary i was watching hirsch they actually got jelly to, to take part of it i i don't know if if the book or the sources you were reading, did they get anybody actually officially on the record? Um, no, I don't. I don't know if they were able to get anybody on the record, but I do know that there were um, a couple quotes from uh, documents that they had either uh, written as kind of like a uh, admittance or or what have you. Okay, well, listen to this fucking asshole. All right, so Jelly, uh, he tells that there's no bomb at Bologna. It was a transport problem where three people were just carrying explosives. 
Can, what? can you fucking believe the goddamn nerve in that guy? What a fucking idiot, dude. That's like the same assholes who were trying to... Man. Dude, that's fucked. How was that... How did that guy not... See, like, I think about shit like that, right? And I... Again, I'm not condoning violence. I'm not saying I support it. But, like, I think about all the acts of violence that are, like, perpetrated on people throughout, like, a daily basis. And I think about how many of those people actually deserve it versus the ones that don't. And it's just, like, you see people like that who who just laugh off, like, the deaths of innocent people and try to, like, come up with some excuse just so they don't have, like, any guilt associated with it. It's like, how come that dude hasn't gotten his ass whooped yet? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's never the people Why? who really have it fucking coming. Yeah, it, that's so fucking frustrating. No, I, that's actually disgusting. No, honestly, the only the only um, quotes that I had seen and that I had gotten were were basically from uh, he he eventually he was basically a journalist who was in, who was involved with uh, with Gladio, and it was some of the admins of some of the stuff that he had done. And some of the stuff that they had done, including um, what we had talked about uh, the other day, Sue, which is the uh, the Morrow affair, right, as it's referred to. Okay. Um, and he actually he actually had a very pivotal role in exposing what happened. He's the guy that provided that quote um, in that document where they uh, where everybody who was involved had basically said, like, yeah, we had to basically sacrifice Morrow because if we didn't, then like the future of our our thing was at jeopardy. That's that's the guy who said it. Yeah, Andreotti, I believe his name. I'm gonna double check later as I get more into moral later on here. Yeah, Andreotti Picchielli or whatever I believe. Yeah, but yeah, so you have Jelly and P2 who obviously were definitely involved. If he's got some bullshit cover story, why would he even bother unless they're directly involved? So you have some of the names involved in this in this bombing, probably at a higher gladio level. So you have Federico Umberto Di Mato, who is the head of political police, the Ministry of the Interior from '72 to '74. Who talks about it was difficult to find the perpetrators of a bombing because you know it could have been anybody. The attacks could have been carried out by anyone, is what he said at one point. And so you can tell that there's the cover up was on from the very beginning. There's no direct yeah. evidence of CIA financing, but there is a trail of payments to people with the Italian Secret Services, either through P2 or through some of the other fucking acronyms that I can't fucking remember half the time. <laughs> yeah, because there's too many. Yeah, and some of these people did not know of Gladio and the connection to violence, but they were there was getting pay, payments were getting made along the way anyway. So you have Giannatini, who was eventually absolved in the Piazza Fontana bombing. He was definitely uh, on this payment list. He, they had kind of a tiered system, and so they had if you were number one, you got paid the most. If you were number two, you got paid you know a little bit less, uh, you know so on and so forth. A three, four, five. So he was a number four. He got a thousand dollars a month from the CIA. Uh, you have this guy Pino Rayuti, who was a number two. He got four grand a month, either through P two or through these other services. You have uh, he was questioned in 1972. Either that, or it was the Sarabali guy who was in the SID secret services, but he was a number one. He got six grand a month. Uh, Damato, that guy I had mentioned before, he was also listed as a number one. He got six grand a month, most likely. Uh, Cauchi, he had infiltrated Ordi Nuovo. Uh, he was a number five. Alivana, Mich- Alivana was number one. Michelli was number one. So all these guys are getting paid either under the table or through other other means, uh, either through P two or through the CIA. And where the money comes in is kind of what you had talked about with the Vatican setting up. Exactly. Yeah. 
because they, they, you know, they needed the network. And, you know, when it came to a secret organization, obviously we had mentioned there were some political figures and military figures, but it was something they had to keep off the books. Right. So um, it was it was kind of like uh, like your typical organized crime where it's, you know, it's a cash only business. Right. Like if you're going to buy a fucking AK-47, it's not like you can use a credit card when you're buying it from, you know, Tony around the corner. You know, it's like, oh, do you accept Visa? Like, no, it's it's a straight cash business. And, you know, what better what what better way to to be able to launder straight cash than through a complete sovereign bank in a sovereign nation? So. No, absolutely. And that's why I'm glad that you're able to look more in the angle because it kind of helped shade in some of the lines that I was able to get to, you know. And I, I hope some of the stuff I talked about was able to, to shine a little bit of light on that, too. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, some of the names that you had mentioned, um, it's just names that I remember um, either reading or hearing um, when it came to uh, a lot of the setup structure of uh, the Gladio Network. You, you know, you had mentioned before the P2 Lodge um, you uh, out in Cyprus, right? That's where it was? Yeah, I can't remember for sure where the P2 Lodge, but Cyprus is where the Knights of Malta are, so I wouldn't doubt it. Knights of Malta, that's right. Okay, yeah. But there there was uh there was some there was like there was Cyprus and then there was like a couple of states around the Black Sea. Well, um, like Sardinia was where one of the Gladio bases was, so there's that for that as an example. Okay. Um but I know that uh in, in the setting ups there was there was that area and then on the American side where they would take um some of the Italian operatives and some of the German operatives, I believe it was the Hotel Luxembourg that was in New York. Um it was one of many um agency safe houses where they would basically like wine and dine these um Italian bankers and um nobles and uh some of these ex-German war criminals and shit like that to just basically take them under the wing and kind of gain a little bit of uh, information on them. Okay. And, and I don't know if this will really speak to, to how the, how some of your parallel structure groups were organized, but part of the documentary went into how these different groups were set up, how they were organized, how were they, how they were given information. And one of the examples they used was the, the Brabant stuff, uh, talking about Paul Antonis again and, and setting up the, the Westland group that we had mentioned before. But they had talked about specifically that U.S. Army field manual that State Department always says, you know, is bullshit or whatever. That it was, you know, about infiltrating insurgent groups, expose the threat by secret means if needed, but it was always about, you know, stopping the communists by any means necessary. Uh, there was a guy, Ray Klein, who actually was part of the State Department. I think at one point he suspects it could be real. He was like, yeah, it could be. I never saw it, but like it doesn't sound out of like what we kind of thought. And so you do have some people who aren't like on the payroll at the time, or at least maybe don't care if they're on the payroll anymore, who are willing to say stuff about it. But that Colonel Oswald Oswald LeWinter, he thinks he said it was an authentic document. Uh, Jelly claims he was given a copy of it to read before meeting with the CIA. State Department, of course, says it's a forgery. It was part of, you know, psyops and propaganda. Uh, The State Department actually says what the Soviets were doing or what they were doing is what the Soviets were doing. You know, the Soviets had these underground networks of paramilitary groups looking to subvert Italian democracy. And they were just there to fight that. And it's just such bullshit. I don't know how anybody can report and quote the state department seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's the equivalent of, you know, like when you, when you'd point out something that Trump did, right. And they'd be like, well, Obama did it too. Like, yeah. And do you think that I wasn't fucking complaining about it? Then you moron. Yeah. Like, and Obama was a fucking war criminal too. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, 
it's always like, well, they're doing it too. They did it like, okay, but th- that doesn't excuse it. You it's like two, two wrongs don't make it right. I don't know who the fuck raised these people, dude, but my God. Yeah, no, it's fucking ridiculous. And so what you have are these stretchers who are, are set up like the Brabant stuff that we talked about, right? Where you have these, these attacks on barracks where they take weapons, where they get weapons from military caches, that kind of stuff is going on in Belgium. It's probably going on elsewhere. It's most likely how a lot of these groups are operating, getting getting training at different times. Uh, we find out one of the reasons 1984 was a fucking gap year was that was when they were training. Like I found a training schedule in 1984 was listed as one of the times that all those guys were involved in heavy training simulations. And so you have uh, these right-wing groups, but also the use of ultra-left organizations where leaderships of other groups, if not possible, they're infiltrated, if not outright taken over. But you have what's termed media terrorism in the 1980s. And Italy kind of had the same kind of thing going on in the 70s, where we'll talk about it more with the kidnapping of Aldo Moro here in a few moments. But it was the use of the media to shock the public and political circles. Uh, It didn't matter if it was left or right or foreign government secret services. It was all about destabilizing democratic society. And so there's a lot of unexplained events in Belgium, the Brabant killings being number one. So you had t- we had talked about uh, Latinists getting involved there. Uh, Michel Liebert, though part of Westland New Post, talked about this overall structure where there was these centers of power. It was people who were basically the, the re- really high ups, and you had nine or ten people pretty much at any given time who were the really high ups, and you had this very small center of power. And then these concentric circles that would be around and, and people in the circles would kind of know the information in the circle. Only the people at the center of power knew everything. And so that's kind of how these different groups are set up. P2, uh, New, the New Order, the Vanguard that we had mentioned, those different groups, they're, they're all part of the same collective. And so we, we saw the same thing in Belgium with the WMP, with the bond that we had talked about. And I think one of the things I wanted to ask you is how does the mob get involved? So the mob gets involved. Um, it starts well on the American end. The mob gets involved through uh, Lucky Luciano, is how they actually get involved okay. in the beginning. <clears throat> um, and the reason that Luciano's involved is because obviously, um, during that time period, Luciano was kind of like a prominent on the rise uh, character in in the mafia, and um. The United States was really worried about um, a Nazi uh, attack on the New York ports or like some sort of like Nazi sleeper cell um, attacking uh, ships that were ported in New York getting ready to ship out overseas. So they realized that they had to get infiltration on the New York docks and part of the, uh, the longshoremen, which as anybody who's watched a mafia movie or a mafia television show, um, the labor unions, um, especially on the on the docks, are completely corrupted and um, infiltrated by the crime families in the area. So the United States government at first were trying to uh, discover if there was any infiltration at the time. And basically, the, the people that were running there were telling the United States agencies, like, listen – you guys are going to have a hard time being able to stick federal agents down here wearing fucking, you know, long coats and top hats and shit like that. If you really want the the docs to be secure and to make sure nothing gets in here that shouldn't, like, you're going to have to get lucky to uh, to give you the sign off and, like, have him be the protection. 
And that's where you have people like Jesus Angleton and Wild Bill um, start establishing um, intelligence um, relationships with these guys because they realize that they're going to need their help. Um, and that's and that's essentially how the introduction became uh, to the mafia on this side. Now, again, over on the other side, over in uh, Italy, um, a lot of a lot of Italy post Mussolini was basically like a power vacuum seal and the mafia had basically taken over control again. Now, before World War II and during World War II, Mussolini had basically rounded up a lot of the uh, the mafia families and put them in specific areas so they were a lot weaker than they were before. Um, I can't remember where the quote was, but there was somebody who had quoted saying that, like, you know, had the social issues kind of been put to rest or taken care of by the Italian government, the the mafia, as we know, it probably would have never been because they could have got wiped out, essentially. Um, OK, so uh, because of the infiltration of the mafia and the corruption that was taking place in Italy post Mussolini and through CIA backed uh, coups and uh, political moves, um, a lot of these Italian bankers and lawmakers um were also part of the mafia. I mean, you know, if you've watched Godfather, right, like the Italian police force or any any mafia movie, they always talk about, you know, the police force back home is completely corrupt. Every lawyer is corrupt and bought off by somebody. And that's essentially how it was. It was kind of like a free-for-all. And um, that's that's how the introduction between um, the mafia and the intelligence agencies started up. Okay. No, it makes sense. And uh especially with their connection to unions. I imagine they'd want infiltration with any communist activity going on in the unions and that kind of thing. Well, exactly. They were worried about that. And, and again, they needed, they needed some sort of insurance, right? Like, would you rather deal with the devil that you don't know or deal with the mobster that you know what he wants and what he's looking for? You know what I mean? Who's it easier to please? Well, and the argument that you make is again, like the warlords kind of argument, like at least they have traditional values that we can connect with them. Like you have the importance of family, you know, hardworking, blah, 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 you know, because, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, so exactly. Think, so, yeah, the, the mob becomes, along with the Vatican and uh, with the money that you had talked about, one of these parallel structures, along with groups like Latinus, who was charged with forming, you know, an army on the model of the SS. You have these neo-Nazi groups who, well, they might not seem like they would want to work together or might not necessarily agree on everything politically. They're, they're working in concert for the same thing. And so we talked a lot about the rightist groups as well, not just, you know, neo-Nazis, but different right-wing groups, the Vatican, the mob, but there was also involvement of left-wing groups. And it wasn't just, you know, blaming left-wing groups. There was actual left-wing groups that were involved. Now, the argument that I'm going to end up making, and I, I think you might end up agreeing with me, is that these left-wing groups that were involved in a lot, some of the state-sponsored terrorism were definitely infiltrated and weren't acting either according to leftist goals or leftist ideals. Um, you can have leftist violence that does occur. It is justified in some cases. It's not what I'm going to argue at all, but you definitely have with, uh, with the kidnapping of Aldo Moro that we're going to go more in detail here, a situation where I think uh, a leftist group had been taken over by neo-Nazis and by the state and were acting against the left's interest at the time. And so part of what you have as a little bit of a background here, um, the involving the Red Brigades and Aldo Moro. You definitely have P2 involved here. Uh, the big question that we're going to have up here is, spoiler alert, was he uh, even really killed or kidnapped by the Red Brigade? 
Was it some other purpose? Was it the Red Brigade itself, or were they infiltrated by the CIA or other rightist organizations or the state? There's a lot of theories, conspiracy theories that surround the case. So we're going to try to talk about fact as much as we can, but it is very cloudy with this, and we're just going to be making conjectures based on everything we've learned about Gladio and about the whole mission structure to begin with. That's why we wanted to go in depth, you know, on these about these parallel structures and about how they're set up, what they're working towards, because you can see how the Red Brigades and either false leftist or leftist groups might fit into all of this. And so did, did you have a chance to read up a little bit on the, the political background about what was going on at the time of Morrow? Um, yeah. So basically from, from my understanding of what was going on during that, during that time of uh, Elder Morrow's uh, political ascension and his um, assertiveness and, and the political structure, uh, at that point in time, the Communist Party in Italy had surprisingly actually taken like 25% of the vote that they weren't expected to and ended up getting um, more power in government than was expected and wanted, right? Like that was part of the thing. And part of the reasoning was um, it was Mauro himself and a few other political figures who basically had kind of like reached out to the left, right? Like that's, they had basically tried saying like, Hey, why don't we work together on some things? Like he reached out to a few socialists and, um, uh, things of that nature. Or am I, or am I wrong on that? Right. That's, that's pretty much the, the quick background. Uh, he was a former prime minister. He was, uh, head of the Christian democracy party. Um, he had been trying to make a coalition government with the communist party of Italy at the time. And coalition government for people who aren't as familiar with like a parliamentary democracy as opposed to the, uh, the form that we have, the federal, federalist style, where you have, you have multiple parties that end up getting elected to parliament or to whatever represented body. And the way they form a prime minister or form a government is you have multiple parties coming together to form coalitions or blocks that can work together to form a majority government. And so a lot of times it's not just one party in power, it's people who have common goals who are, who are trying to work towards things. So he was on the center for the most part. Maybe you could describe them as center left, probably some of their members. They were a centrist party, in some cases center right, um, with who ends up taking power after this. They were definitely center right. We have a centrist party who's reaching out to the left because the left at that time is gaining, gaining po popularity with the people for good reason, because you have this horrible situation where the state is turning against it, its own people and the left is actually making gains uh, because the material interests of the people aren't getting met and all they're getting is violence. And so that, that step that was really important was to organize a leftist movement to fight against. And so you have in the Red Brigade, a group that was active in Italy from 1970 to 1988 they were responsible for numerous violent incidences during the years of lead. One of their stated goals was to remove Italy from the NATO, uh, NATO treaties. Uh, I'm pretty sure even leftists at that time realized there was more going on than what was officially declared by the state. And so you had sabotage, kidnappings, bank robberies, and murders from 1974 to, near, to 1988. They, uh, I think they killed nearly 50 people, or maybe it was injured. I'm not 100% on that number. Uh, they had anti-fascist organizations and leftist politics. Uh, they basically, they were broken open in the 1980s, late 1970s, 1980s, where they were definitely infiltrated. And they don't, you can tell it's not a leftist organization by that point. 
the, the expansion and radicalization happened first in 1974, where there's high profile kidnappings and ransoms. There is uh, drugs and arm trafficking to kind of uh, keep everything going. Uh, the big thing that kind of, like I said, is sometimes pointed to as the end of the years of light is the kidnapping of James Dozier. And he was the guy that was uh, held up, I think, by like four plumbers. Uh, I think I told that story a little bit last time. Hirsch, I don't know if you remember that. I recall it, yeah. But yeah, basically like these guys dressed up as plumbers and like put his wife at gunpoint and kidnapped him and all this kind of stuff. And I can't help but think of that office episode where uh, they they, up. Yeah. Yeah, where they're, they're just Karen. And I know it's not funny, but that's what I picture. I picture Jim and Dwight with a mustache. <laughs> yeah, dude, no, that's actually fucking hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to at least mention that part of it because I thought that was kind of funny. No, that's but yeah, so you have you have uh, to make, you know, it was all about making the public think it was the left. You have in 1968, the student revolts and armed leftist action groups that which had formed. That's kind of what a response to the years of lead, the years of lead is a response to, excuse me, 1969. Like we mentioned in 68, there's also a huge, uh, the Paris Commune is a huge thing. That's something you should definitely look up if you're interested at all in leftist history. Uh, 68 was a big year. There's a reason why it like, uh, like the left scares the shit out of people and why 69 would have been a time to respond. And so you have the Red Army Faction, which I think was a group uh, in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, and then the Red Brigades, other groups that are that are forming in a response to these 19, to 1968 and different stuff going on. Because you, you even have it here, right? You don't get this extreme left, uh, left organization, but you have the Black Panthers, you have uh, uh, SDS, you have uh, stuff like the Democratic... Uh, where they have the, the people getting the shit beat out of them by the cops at the Democratic uh, Convention. Excuse me, couldn't think yeah, of the word. I, I remember, yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember seeing, yeah. um, seeing some stuff about it. Yeah, so I mean, 68 is like a big year. So like, it makes sense that, that the years of lead would have been framed after this, if you, if you know a little bit of history about it. We probably should have gone more into that. I apologize. Now, there's, dude, there's so much, it's completely understandable. But yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of buildup and a lot of tension um, at that point. And there, there's a lot of fear uh, within the the state, within the state, as we had mentioned before, right? Like that concept of um, allowing uh, a country to feel as if they're sovereign and they have their own freedoms, but having people within it working towards a cause that you're more worried about as opposed to the cause that the people are, are looking for. Mm-hmm. No, and so you, you have what happens involving the Red Brigades is the Aldo Moro kidnapping, which was a seminal event in Italian political history, uh, the 16th of March, 1978, where he is kidnapped and held for 54 days. His body is eventually found on the 9th of May, 1978, after a people's trial, quote-unquote, and asking for a prisoner exchange. Uh, he wasn't tortured while he was held captive. The motives apparently were to uh, have certain political people freed and to stop the negotiations from happening. So apparently these negotiations were not wanted by the far left and by the political center and right. But I tend to think it wasn't the far left. It was a co-opted organization that was taken over. And I don't know if you're going to agree with that, Hirsch, but uh, that's kind of what the case I'm going to lay out here a little bit. I mean, honestly, I I feel like the kidnapping tomorrow is more or less um, – I feel like it's more or less – just to cover up by a lot of these uh, right-wing fascist groups to try to kind of cover up loose ends just because of how pivotal um, 
the eventual death of Morrow is to uh, to Gladio as we know it, and how it kind of uh, is basically like the list of events that lead to its unearthing. Yeah, and you, really, it's one of those things where you look at who benefits afterwards, right? That's kind of how you can tell who might have at least taken advantage of it, if not organized it completely. Well, yeah, because after yeah. that point, you know, a lot of these leftist groups were getting completely, like, hounded. I mean, there were <clears throat> there were numerous instances of um, different leftist political figures that were getting arrested and detained, um, tortured, uh, shot and killed. Uh, kidnapped and never released. I mean, there was there was numerous instances of um, just a typical response that you would see from a uh, fascist or a police state. Absolutely. And I know we're running a little bit short on time, so I'll try to make the, the moral stuff here relatively quick. But I think it is important because it kind of culminates and shows uh, how far Gladio was willing to go. And it also shows how it eventually won, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so you have the kidnapping of Valdemoro, where, you know, the background was on that day, it was going to be a debate for national unity government, including the communists who hadn't been in power at all since 1948. Morrow believed it was needed for political stability. The red brigades and other left-wing groups had been uh, penetrated and infiltrated by the secret services. <clears throat> it was difficult to infiltrate the uh, red brigades, but they were eventually able to get really high and important positions. And uh, that guy, D'Amato, that I mentioned before, the Secret Service is a Ministry of Interior guy. Uh, he had been in power during the fascist regime under Mussolini. And after his father had been chief of police, he had been employed by the police during the committee post-war. He was actually part of the group that was in charge of getting rid of fascists, even though he was a fascist. And uh, he was always with the Secret Services. Um, 1968, like I said, it was seen as a great threat. The, they were worried about having you know, a leftist takeover. So he actually had proposed a permanent European committee called the, the Bernay Club, which was composed of different, different secret services and different organizations. And they still met like up until the 90s, at least. I don't know if they still do or not. But Vince Aguero talks about the secret services of US and Europe were definitely involved and they eventually became involved in this internal political battle that started in 1972, where they tried to start like these fake Maoist organizations where it was something called Operation Chinese Poster where the La Vanguardia Nacional, a right group, was giving the task of putting up Maoist posters as an attempt to create the ultra-left more extreme than the communists. And so the thought of uh, making up a group that would be even more extreme than the left to, to take it even further. And so it was thought of at a meeting of the Secret Services of Europe, the U.S., and apparently China was involved somehow. I don't know, I don't know about that, but I saw that, that listed. But the club still existed in 92, like I had mentioned, to bring together Secret Services. And the Red Brigades were well-known at that point, and the aim, like I said, was to infiltrate them uh, as much as possible. The Red Brigade members were well-known to police and the Secret Services. They, weren't, they didn't try to hide their, their, their personas publicly. Uh, Alberto Franceschini was a founding member. Uh, they had targeted a judge and kidnapped him, and a politician was the next target. But uh, originally, that Andriotti guy, he was the target before Moro, and it got changed. I wonder why it got changed. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's something to keep in mind, too. Pensive. So originally, Andriotti... <laughs> what was that? I said pensive look given. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he was the target before any real planning took place, and Renato, another co-founding member, and Franceschini were arrested. An infiltrator, quote-unquote, Brother Mitra, had been in contact with the group for a year at that point, was going to be asked to become head of their military training, 
So this dude was so trusted by them that he was going to get put in a position to train all of their guys in military tactics. And the question becomes, why strike then? Why go after Morrow when he's trying to actually combine with the left? The infiltrator was on the verge of knowing much more, too. Like, he was about to get put in a really good position to know some shit. So I think because they found out Andriotti was the target, they had to pull the trigger. I think that that combined with Morrow talking to the left made it so that it was now or never. And so you have the Red Brigade's planning staff who's taking orders from General Santavito, who is in the SISMI. Again, like I said, a lot of acronyms. Uh, this guy, Marucci, had a diary which detailed uh, Group D and that uh, this General Giovanni Romeo, a couple other guys that I had mentioned before. So you have General Romeo, another head of uh, D, the SID, Secret Services, admitted that he had agents in the Red Brigades during commissions on the massacres uh, that were investigated before. He had Senator Giarelli, uh, Giarretieri, excuse me, who was the head of the parliamentary inquiry. Um, he talked about how Romero was an officer of the Secret Services in the area at the time. This guy, Ravazio, another SISMI agent, trained at the Gladio base at Capo Marajua. Uh, he was a university informer. Uh, excuse me, a university informer had told them of the kidnapping plot of Moro. So they often had uh, university contacts because they said that it was important to get the chemicals and bombs and explosives from university and chemical and like lab sources as opposed to government sources all the time. But you had this guy, Colonel Gugliemi, who had uh, who was the Intelligent Bureau of the Ministry of the Interior. He, uh, he was also a trainer at the Gladio base. He had been in uh, Viafani and had witnessed the kidnapping, according to Ravazio. We're going to get a little bit into the specifics of the kidnapping with this guy. This colonel was around, apparently. And he claimed that he had been invited to a friend's house for lunch. And that was at 9 in the morning. Who goes to lunch at 9? The friend later claimed that he did stop over, but that he showed up uninvited. And so you had these guys who were involved in these intelligence communities who will be involved in Moro. So we're not just talking conspiracy stuff. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more in detail, but know that Moro's widow testified he had told her that the plan to create a national government with the communists would not be tolerated by certain groups and that he was told he would uh, pay dearly for it. And uh, unfortunately, he does. So much so that they end up finding him in the trunk of a car. Yeah. Yeah, they, they find him in the trunk of a car, but they, they pull off a pretty elaborate kidnapping is the first thing that they do. And you had that guy, Francini, uh, Francinini, who was one of the founders, who didn't believe that his comrades were capable to pull off something like the moral kidnapping. They were unexperienced youth for the most part, not able to carry out a complex military act after such a short time. Like I said, they were, they were hiring that guy as a military trainer because they weren't trained properly. And so you have 49 of the 92 bullets found in Via Fani, which is the kidnapping site, were covered with a special coating and had no data manufacturer. Those are the kind of things that are usually used by special forces that are often tied to those NATO caches that we had mentioned. Well, and also so like, the, the trace elements, there was a special sort of paint that was used for the uh, for the ammo and these weapon caches that they found in the bodyguards as well. Um, I, I just felt like that was an important detail to add, as yep, well as the fact, absolutely. as well as the fact that um, crime investigators on the scene. Um, when they when they investigated it, they had mentioned the fact that the way that the hit was carried out, there was no way that it was just a bunch of kids or people that were inexperienced. It was a very precise, targeted, clean, efficient wipeout of this entire vanguard of bodyguards. Absolutely. And so 
you have on the 9th of May, 1978, Morrow's body was found, like Hirsch had mentioned, after 54 days of imprisonment. But leading up to that, you have this whole thing that goes on where the Red Brigade supposedly is sending out letters that he, he has written. There's a lot of doubt as to some of the letters, whether as he eventually ends up blaming like his own party for his, his uh, predicament because they won't negotiate, they won't try to get him out. But I want to talk a little bit more about, like you had mentioned, the fact that, you know, they weren't really capable of these kind of tactics. The, the tactics actually were similar to something that had happened with the German far left formation, the RAF that I mentioned. And so it's obvious that these different leftist organizations are all connected by something probably connected with Gladio. Uh, they killed a bunch of his bodyguards in the kidnapping, uh, 91 bullets, uh, 45 hit the bodyguards, 49 of the shots came from a single weapon, and they think this guy was actually like probably a, a high-end merc. And funnily enough, the guy who was known as, you know, the Jackal, that Bruce Willis movie, yeah, his name came up in the Gladio stuff a couple times, where like he's approached by them for stuff, or like people are told that they're looking for him. Like, it was very strange. Hmm. But yeah, on that day, the, the escort were not carrying their weapons. They kept them in the trunk. Uh, they're like, these guys didn't really know how to use weapons anyway. The radio wasn't operational. It didn't work. Uh, one of the guy's widows kind of claims something different, but it seems obvious that these guys were not prepared for what was going to happen. Um, they really weren't able to, to really pull off that kind of stuff, and their bodyguards weren't prepared for this kind of thing. So it was kind of the perfect storm of what was going to be coming up. So like we had said, uh, the reason why we think that it, it's pretty obvious that the, the Red Brigades were, were infiltrated and, and taken over and not really acting in the left's kind of best interests. And they, they, had, they had an opportunity with Morrow because they had done this thing where they would ask for a bunch of documents or a bunch of state secrets and then dump them. They could have found out about Gladio and told everybody about it, but they never did. So you have to wonder why they didn't operate their, their usual kind of stuff. And so you have these different committees who are formed to try to investigate it after it happens, where it, you, you get the involvement of P2, Gladio, the Italian intelligence services that really comes to a head. A lot of what we talked about, a lot of the names that we mentioned are involved in a lot of this stuff too. Payments are coming from the same kind of people. Uh, the infiltration of the Red Brigades, like we had mentioned. Yeah, the, the Jackal that I had, I had mentioned. Uh, he talked about how negotiations had, had stopped at one point because he thought that they were they came to him talking about possibly getting people out in negotiations. And they were like, no, we're done negotiating. We're going to let Moro get killed. And like you had mentioned that quote before where Moro basically becomes a sacrifice. Yep. It's a it's a perfect yeah. it's a perfect um, scapegoat, right? Because you know the death, you can uh, in, in terms of Gladio, they kind of pointed and I'd mentioned it, right? In the in the terms that they presented, uh, he's kind of the death of Gladio of of what it was at least up until that point. And it's funny too because part of what they were worried about is the expose of Gladio. That's part of the the Gladio's discovery was a possible threat of why they they let him kind of dangle, and. Mm-hmm. The, the main connection I did see to the mob was the Calabrian, uh, Cal- Calabrian maybe, mafia is heavily involved in this, where they knew the criminal underworld pretty well, and they knew where Moro was, and they could have gotten Moro at any point. They oh, had mob mean, information. Do you mean the Corsican mafia? They're, they're called in the stuff I saw, the Calabrian, but maybe that's another word for it. 
Okay. Or the Calabrian. Well, yeah, then you have this guy, Steve Pazenik, who's the State Department guy who's really involved in a lot of different weird shit. Like, I think he was there to, like, help cover it up. But then you have the involvement of that journalist you had mentioned, if you want to take just a minute to talk about him. Um, yeah, so in 1979, there was a document that um, that had come out, and it was basically an impl- implication um, from this journalist, Piccarelli, and it was um, – they had brought the statement that we had just mentioned where uh, they basically said, you know, Morrow was this guy that they had to sacrifice. He was, it was worth it. And it was for the cause. And it was actually, um, he was, Piccarelli kind of met the same fate that a lot of these people who were in charge with investigating these different attacks that we had mentioned before. Um, A lot of people looking into it were eventually, um, died under mysterious circumstances or were just plain outright murdered. And in the case of Piccarelli, um, he was actually found dead, gunned down with a stone in his mouth, which is a uh, classic a uh, calling card, I guess you could say, for the mafia over over in Italy, which is basically, you know, saying you shouldn't throw stones and watch what the fuck you say. And, uh, yeah, so that was, um, that was the fate that he eventually... Uh, came to now the the part of the reason that he was killed was not just for the exposure of um the secret organization it was also because of the fact that um he himself was involved within the secret organization was a prominent member of the p2 group that we had mentioned before yeah and he actually had a quote where he pretty much hinted that the group that captured morrow wasn't the same group that was holding him and they had planned the whole thing. He talked about the authors of the massacre of Viafani and the kidnapping of all their moral professionals trained in top-level war schools. The killers sent to assault the president's car instead could only be unschooled workers recruited on the road. So he, he saw uh, definitely a different kind of involvement. And what he kind of had a different theory. He thought that the communist gains were democratically opposed by the U.S. and the USSR. So he thinks that's part of why the red brigades were so easily infiltrated and so easily used is that it actually served a Soviet motive. But I kind of... I don't know if I buy into that completely, but I, I do appreciate his understanding of other issues. Yeah. I, I mean, I could definitely see why, um, you know, from, uh, from a Stalin standpoint and from a USSR standpoint, why you would allow um, for this infiltration, maybe, maybe the public outlook um, precisely in Italy wouldn't be beneficiary, but the outlook within your own, within your own country, because then you can at least point and say, you know what we're about. You see what happens when these Western imperialists get involved. That's what happens. Death and destruction. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like it's, I can see it, but honestly, there's the only beneficiary in my eyes um, to the death of Morrow is uh, well, it's and, and, and funny enough, it wasn't even beneficial. Um, was the oper- operatives of Gladio itself, and a lot of these right-wing uh, fascist and uh, Nazi groups? Yeah, and so you, you have a lot of stuff about the kidnapping that that's just kind of not up to snuff. If you want to look more into it, there's an entire really like long Wikipedia entry that I found really interesting about the kidnapping that goes a lot more into the mob connections, into the other connections that we're we're kind of glossing on because you don't want to go too much in the muck here but uh basically morrow wrote one of the letters uh where he claimed that the christian democrats had left him for dead or were in fact responsible 
Uh, you have Francisco Casinga. He was the president of Italy from 85 to 92. He talks about how Moreau was sacrificed to save the Republic. Uh, one of the interesting things is that the Red Brigades had a printing office with a printing press, which actually came from the Secret Services, the unit of special recruitment who had recruited the gladiators. And so the Red Brigades were using propaganda machine provided by the state, funnily enough. <laughs> Full circle, my and So, yeah. Yeah, the Red Brigades had, you know, according to the State Department, the Red Brigades were successful in terrorizing Italy. And so Vince Guerrero talks about he profoundly believes in what he was doing and still does. He wanted the truth that the state denies and can't believe that there are those willing to accept the, the rewards from the state, but will keep silent about so much. You have Franchinetti, who was serving 17 years in jail at the point, who wanted to know what or, or who had used him and his friends, his comrades. And D'Amato, that gentleman I, I had talked about, he mentioned that, you know, there was puppets, there was automatons. They, they talked about these people as, as automated puppets that they control. They created life and that where there is none. They were political puppets that they were using. And so one of the political consequences is you have the coalition falls apart. The, the left is not able to get power. The Christian Democrats hold on to power at least until 1994 when they dissolve as a party. But you have the center right and the conservative groups holding power basically uh, for most of the 90s, uh, 2000s, and early 10s. And you get neoliberal conditions that which help nobody materially and just creates more fascism. And on uh, that very day of the kidnapping, uh, Andriotti's cabinet had gotten a vote for confidence where all the Italian parties basically backed him. And so he became the new leader, even though he was originally the, the target. And it was likely because of that, that Operation Gladio stepped in and Moreau became a sacrifice. And that was, uh, yeah, that was pretty much it. I, I know we kind of rushed through the moral stuff, but uh, definitely look it up if you have a chance. It's, it's really interesting. It's really terrible and sad. Like his widow has a lot of good quotes about how he was used and the system was just fucked from the beginning. No, the, uh, the moral, the moral situation or the moral affair as it's referred to is definitely, um, it's definitely kind of a perfect wrap up when it comes to just uh, the overall um, seriousness and tenacity of uh, Operation Gladio and just goes goes to show again um, the lengths that uh, the, I guess you could say the powers that at that be are willing to go. You know, it's not just um, people that are on the front lines and people that are on the streets that are sacrificed. It's one of these things that, you know, a lot of these political pawns tend to forget that, you know, they're just cannon fodder like the rest of us as well. You know, nobody... Nobody's really safe unless, you know, it, I think about that joke, right, where it's just like, you know, people think they're rich. You know, they think Shaq's rich. Like, no, Shaq's not rich. The motherfucker writing the check for Shaq is rich. Like, I want to be rich well. and wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same thing when it comes to, uh, you know, there's people who are strong and there's people who have power. Well, and I know we're going to wrap up here. Just the one thing I want to say is I think we focused on Gladio so much is because it, it'll give you an idea when we cover these other topics in the future, especially in Central and South America, that all these things are connected and that you're going to see stuff rhyming. You're going to see stuff repeating and that keep in mind, you know, the guy who said, I want to know who or what used me and keep in mind that the guys who do this kind of stuff, think of you and everybody else's puppets. 100%. Well, it's about to wrap up here. So on behalf of everyone, um, thank you guys so much for listening up until this point. 
Um, we weren't able so much to get into some of the money thing. Um, we'll try to figure out if we're going to do an extra episode on that or if we're just going to uh, just go on to the next subject. But either way, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to be brainstorming on the next topic that's going to be at hand. Um, it might be one of the viewer suggestions and it might be uh, something that Steve and I want to go with. Uh, is there anything you want to say real quick, Steve, before it ends? We definitely are going to do an appendum episode, a small episode on the money stuff. All right. Definitely. All right. Um, it's